Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And I'll tell you right now, uh, we're going to be dealing with collateral damage of injustice as that series continues, uh, dealing with the injustice happening in this nation. Tonight, we're going to highlight the life, the memory of Joyce Ann Brown, without question a victim of a system that failed, and also the untimely death and we believe murder of Michael Anderson in Florence, Colorado. Folks, it doesn't get better than this as we uncover the corruption in a system that has fallen off the tracks. We take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Lisa Stewart, Kendrick Barnes, Sampson Riddle, and Dennis Merritt as we, again, continue our series on collateral damage uh, of injustice. And we appreciate you folks for tuning in tonight as we get ready to talk about some really uh, sensitive conversations, if you will. Sabson, as we have addressed this issue, but dealing with trying to focus on these two folks tonight, uh, Joyce Ann Brown appeared on this, tele, on this radio program, uh, and I'll tell you what, the woman had a lot to say, became an advocate, have, after having an alibi, uh, a time card punched, showing that she was at work during the time of the commission of this crime, they still arrested her, convicted her, and she went to prison for it. The death of Michael Anderson, a cover-up without question at Florence Prison Camp here in Colorado, right in our own backyard. Samson, these are serious issues, and we believe that the death of Joyce Ann Brown, I believe, uh, that type of stress, that type of going through what she went through, uh, you have to raise the question, and we've talked about LaWanna Banks-Clark, my sister who passed away uh, under extreme pressure from a system, again, that just simply has failed. Your thoughts as we get into this one? Well, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about, you know, the the miscarriage of justice. We've talked about the the stress that any any person that knows they're guilty go, go, you know, when they go behind the wall, the stress and pressure and everything else that they're under because they're being abused and everything else like that. But then now imagine, you know, serving that type of sentence and knowing the entire time that you're innocent. I mean, I can only, I can only imagine the, the type of emotional, psychological and physical stress that would manifest in that type of person. And Michael Anderson and Joyce Sam Brown are just two of, thousands of examples that we have to go on these days and it's sad that we have that many examples but i think it's a great thing that we're doing here on the show that we're being a voice to them and we're talking about the collateral damage that's cha- that's caused by our justice system kendrick your thoughts 
Yeah, I'd just like to comment on, we're talking about the collateral damage and the pressure that happens to people when they're incarcerated, wrongly incarcerated, or treated badly behind prison bars. And I always wonder, what are those prosecutors and those prison officials who are behind this, how do they sleep at night? How come they get to feel no pressure as they lump it on to whoever they feel they see fit because they have power? And I, I want this show to highlight what they are doing to people, and maybe they will grow a conscience. Uh, for sure, without question. Dennis, your thoughts? Yeah, there's no doubt that what uh, Joyce Sam Brown went through, uh, first with the tragedy of her son, and then the time, you know, you know, just things just, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that the stress played a major role in uh, the injustice uh, to this family. I'm telling you, it's enough is enough. Uh, tonight's show uh, we're going to bring out a lot of stuff. And I, I tell you, it's going to be heart. It's really going to touch the heart because you're going to be listening to the people uh, that are truly involved in what happened. But it's just time out. we got to come together as a nation. And we got to say enough is enough. Collateral damage is real. Uh, we were talking about Luana uh, Banks-Clark. I mean, look at that. That was huge. And, again, it's all because of the injustice done to another and then the stress put on the family that have to deal with it. So hopefully tonight uh, people will listen and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to jump on board and I'm going to do something about it. And there you have it. Folks, uh, Cliff, Cliff, your thoughts before we close out on that. Yeah, I think the uh, thing that stands out to me, to, to uh, Kendrick's point, is that you have these prosecutors and judges that basically miscarry justice. Uh, prosecutors that get overzealous, not about bringing forth justice, but about getting a conviction. And they do whatever... Uh, they feel uh, breaking the law, uh, you know, destroying people's lives, and there's no accountability. And I think that's the biggest thing. If we get some accountability, uh, as far as the prosecutors, as far as the judges, that um, you know, let these these miscarriages go on in courts, then we'll start to see a change in the justice system. But because be until there's uh, there's some type of retribution for them doing what's wrong for them. Uh, taking the law and misusing it, twisting it just to get conviction or if they have a vendetta against somebody until they have to face, uh, you know, basically for their crimes, until they have to face the fallout of their wrongdoing, then nothing's going to change in the system. And that's why, you know, we we continually encourage people to get out and vote. If you have a local uh, a local judge that's up for their judgeship, Vote. If you don't appreciate the things that they've been doing, vote against them. And if you have a judge that's appointed by a president, let that president know by not voting for him again or the people that he put in place. Let them know that, hey, I do not appreciate this judge, this prosecutor miscarrying justice. And the fact that, you know, they're they're immune, that is something that definitely needs to be changed. The law that they put in place to protect themselves from the fallout of their actions that are that are wrong and that are corrupt and that needs to be changed that needs to be handled no absolutely right folks on the other side of the break we're coming back the collateral damage of injustice we address the joyce ann brown story her life her legacy and what she suffered at the hand of a system that has failed this is ajc radio we'll be right back For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. 
trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with, especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call or just calls today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Black History Month is huge. It's a way for us to reconnect with our history. Continue to celebrate and acknowledge the immense amount of contributions that black people have made. Black History Month is a celebration of culture. Another opportunity for everyone to remember that we're all human. And to have a month that reminds people that black history is American history. More than just having names and numbers and dates that are in a book. To remember how important it is to be black. I think that the important Black History Month is that if you don't know where you came from, you're not going to be prepared for where you're going. We all stand on the shoulders of somebody else. If I stand tall, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of those who came before me. Black History. More than a month. We know you care. Now it's time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't give justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can have value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org.
I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody. It'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Red, yellow, black, white. We're all the same color. When you turn out the light. Black History Month is a month of celebration. Uh, a month of, you know, how far we've come, uh, our past, our people of today, uh, just a celebration of all black culture. The opportunities that we have today would not exist without the sacrifices uh, of those before us. They really paved the way for us. The things that really matter during the month is just to continue to push forward, to make sure we continue honoring those thoughts and you know, those individuals. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, as tonight we take a look at the collateral damage of injustice, but at the same time, we take a look back at what I believe one of the true victims of injustice Joyce Ann Brown, uh, a young lady that got out here, was wrongfully convicted, spent years in prison. Uh, we're going to bring that interview, interview to you uh, here in moments uh, so you can actually hear uh, what we're talking about and what she said. You can hear in her own words. She appeared on this radio program, um, and this was something that uh, really touched us. And uh, uh, Dennis, you were here for that, uh, I believe. Is that correct? for that interview yes i was and it was uh, awesome very moving uh, a woman that stuck to conviction uh and really in a position of a lot of pain for what she endured we're going to bring that in we're going to bring that interview interview to you right now we're going to have a discussion we're going to be joined later in this program uh and we'll, we'll get into that with uh, uh the daughter of joyce ann brown a close family friend as well that lived this uh nightmare uh, that Joyce Ann Brown had, had suffered through. We're going to get into the discussion on that. Right now, let's take you to the interview. Uh, this happened prior to the death of Joyce Ann Brown, and she was a delight uh, to hear. Let's hear that. 
at that time, you would do 20 calendar years before you were even able to talk for parole. And I had just simply made up my mind Mm -hmm. that I was, unless something happened, unless somebody came to my rescue, I was going to do a life sentence and come out in a pine box. I had already started to prepare my family for that because in Texas, you have to say I'm sorry, you have to show remorse, and you have to admit to the crime that they had charged you and convicted you of before you could even have an opportunity to talk for parole. Mm -hmm. I was never going to say I was sorry. I was never going to show remorse. I didn't have a reason. And I certainly was not going to admit to a crime that I didn't commit. So after maybe five years, I started preparing my family mm-hmm. that I might just simply have to come out in a pine box. I didn't want them coming down, telling, asking me, uh, talking about it, because there was no way that I was going to admit to a crime that I didn't commit. Absolutely. In 1980, in Dallas, Texas, two black females walked into Fine Furs by Reuben. Robbed the store, shot and killed the owner. It happened May uh, 6, 1980. And the car was rented to a Joyce Ann Brown. And uh, I worked for a first store. I worked for Coslo first, one of the upscale uh, first stores uh, in Texas. May 9th, 1980, I was getting ready for work getting ready to come to work, and one of my friends called me and said, Joyce, are you all right? I said, I'm fine. And so she said, oh, okay, and she hung up the telephone, and then a few minutes later, my mother called me. She said, Joyce Ann? And so I said, yeah, but why are you calling me so early? And so she said, are you all right? I said, yeah. She said, Miss Manny just called me and said that they're looking for you in connection with some kind of robbery. I said, girl, get out of here. I said, somebody's playing a joke on you. And um, I hung up the telephone and I called Miss Nanny. And she was an elder lady who would be well in her hundreds if she was still alive today, helped rear me as a child. When my mother said Miss Nanny, I, I, it, it, something went through me. But I still thought, that maybe, I don't remember her going to school. Can't she read? Could she write? Maybe she's senile. But when I heard her voice, and she said, baby girl, I'm reading in the paper that they're looking for Joyce Ann Brown of 3106, and I stopped her because she was too close to home. Mm-hmm. Said, Miss Nanny, let me go out and get a paper myself, and I'll call you right back. I went out and got a paper came back and called Miss Nanny, and we was reading in the paper that they were looking for Joyce Ann Brown, a 3106 burning tree, and that I had fled to avoid prosecution. And I was saying, Miss Nanny, I'm right here. I'm at home. I'm getting ready to go to work. I haven't went anywhere. 
And so I said, let me call and find out what's happening. And I'll call you back. And what I did is I called a vice officer that I knew. And I said, well, I asked for one officer and he wasn't in. And the voice on the other line said, Joyce? I said, yes. I said, who is this? He said, this is Lieutenant Walt. I said, well, I'm reading in the papers that they're looking for me for some kind of uh, robbery or something. And, and so he said, yeah, he said, we've heard the same thing, but we told him it was not joy. And so I said, look, I don't know where I need to go, but I'm coming down. I'm coming to you, and I want to straighten it out. And by the time I hung up my telephone, it seems that everybody in Dallas, Texas was calling me. And I said, I'm getting ready to go straighten it out. And it was an attorney named Carl Gaines that I knew. He said, Joyce, no, you're not. He said, not without an attorney. Mm-hmm. He said, if you can't get in touch with your attorney, the heck with ethics, I will go down with you and I will represent you. He said, this is not, he said, this is serious. And then I said, well, why, what do you mean? He said, they're looking for you for capital murder. I said, what? He said, capital murder. And so I said, well, let me call Robert Rose. I called Robert Rose, which was my attorney. And he said, Come, go to my office. I'll meet you at my office. And I went to his office. When I got there, speakerphone had just gotten popular. And he mm-hmm. picked up. He hit the speakerphone and threw up both of his hands as if they could see him. And he said, we're coming in. I'm bringing her in. She don't have a knife. She don't have a gun. She don't even have a hairpin. And I'm thinking, has he went crazy? What is he talking about? Mm -hmm. And so when he got off, he said, Joyce, this is serious. I'm going to walk you through the first part of it. And then we're going to have to find somebody that's on capital murder cases. And he took me to, um, uh, uh, he took me to the police department. And when he took me to the police department, uh, my, the, the guy that I was talking about, the vice officer, Walt, uh, said, uh, I have to take your purse. And Walt knew me very well. What do you mean take my purse? And so he said, I've got to place you under arrest. They're not, I thought they were looking. They're not just looking for you. They have charged you uh, with capital murder. Hmm. And, now, Ms. huh? Pardon me, Miss Brown. I didn't mean to interrupt you. At this point, this is Lamont, by the way. Uh, uh-huh. I have the pri- I have the privilege of watching the documentary on BET on, on, on last week, and I'm telling uh-huh. you, I, I have such a great level of respect for you and what you have gone through. At this moment, share with the, our listeners uh, what is going through your mind. How are you able at this point to keep it together? At this, I mean, this is a a tsunami. This is a tornado that's coming through so fast. How are you able to maintain? What are you thinking at this time? What's on your mind at that moment? 
at the moment that they were arresting me? Yeah. At the moment that they were arresting me, uh, what was going through my mind was that I was an innocent person. I did not rob that store, so I didn't have anything to worry about. I see. Until, until I sit in that room for three hours. You know, when I call in, that's when they went to my house and round checked it, found nothing. There was nothing there for them to find, and then came back, and I had sit in the in the um, office for three hours waiting on them to come back to talk to me. And when this white male came in with cowboy boots and the coat with the big patch on the sleeve and the cowboy hat, mm. he wanted to know where was the furs. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I worked for Coslow Furs and he called me a liar. At mm-hmm. that moment, the interview was over. Nobody was going to stand in my face and call me a lie when I knew mm-hmm. I wasn't lying. Absolutely. And that's when he said, Booker. Mm. He said, Booker for capital murder. They booked me for capital murder and put me under a million-dollar bond. The, the court appointed me Carrie P. Fitzgerald, one of us toughest and the baddest lawyers at that time in Dallas, Texas, and then he became, later in, in years, he became a judge. But when Carrie, um, Carrie came to see me and um, I said, I didn't commit the crime. I didn't do it. And he says, well, they, they're offering you a plea of 20 years if you plea bargain, if you go to court, you're looking at death, no less than life. And so I said, they appointed you as my attorney? And he said, yes. I said, okay, I don't want an attorney. They don't believe me. I didn't commit this crime, and sure. I will never, ever admit to a crime that I didn't commit. So if you're not ready to work, then you need to walk away. And he accepted he accepted the case, and they began to work. And I went to trial eight days. Thirteen Anglos testified that I was at work. Time cards proved that I was at work. They, the district attorney said that I left work for, at lunch, during lunchtime, drove three and a half miles, in the process of changing clothes, drove three and a half miles, robbed the store, watched the man shot down like a dog, got back in my car, and drove three and a half miles back to my business where I worked at Coslow's in seven and a half minutes without being missed. Uh, Lamont here again, uh, as I'm sitting here listening to this, okay, did the attorney object? There's certain areas in a, in a trial that you know, okay, mm-hmm. that's absolutely, as you say, impossible, exactly. can't happen. Mm-hmm. Did, was there an objection? Was there a, your honor? Uh, that was everything that you can imagine from wow. an attorney. 
And uh, even the bailiff had been a police officer for 27 years before he retired. He came over to Fitzgerald, the attorney, and said, if that young lady says she was at work, he said, it's totally impossible with the drive time. He said, I believe her. When the I went to court eight days. Fitzgerald mm-hmm. won his case. Nobody can tell me anything, but we're in Texas, and I was a black woman in Texas, and and and, and was charged with capital murder. When the jury came back and said we find the defendant guilty because they couldn't find me guilty of of capital murder, of aggravated robbery in which a murder occurred, I went into shock. I couldn't believe it. I had been there eight days. I know Kerry had won his case. There was no way. When I came out of the twilight zone or wherever it was, I was for a moment, Mm -hmm. he was shaking me. And he was telling me, I won that case. They took my case. I am going to fight until I see you free. Those mm-hmm. were his words to me when I came out of that twilight zone. That's mm-hmm. the reality that these people had had found me guilty of aggravated robbery, and they accessed punishment and life in prison. Mm-hmm. And I told my mama. I'm never going to admit because I didn't do it. Right. And I'm going to fight them for the rest of my life. If I leave prison in a pine box, all I wanted my family to do was to fight and clear my name. But Mm -hmm. see, God didn't see it that way. And Mm -hmm. I came home after spending nine years, five months, and 24 days in prison when Mm -hmm. Jim McCluskey from Centurion Ministries mm-hmm. uh, came to see about me. I had written everybody I could think of all over the state to come see about me because I didn't commit that crime. And I got a letter from Centurion Ministries. Now, Miss... Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. At this point, I presume your post-conviction uh, relief efforts had all kind of uh, ended at this point. We'd be in nine years yeah. in, right? It had, I had ended, and what they what happened was they arrested Renee Taylor, the actual gunman. And when she came to, to the unit, Mountain View unit, where I was, I had been there about a year and a half. Everybody was coming by the dorm that I was in, and they were saying, she's on this unit. What do you want us to do? She's on this unit. And I said, that young lady didn't send me to prison. Malicious prosecution sent me to prison. She didn't go out and Mm -hmm. rob a store with frame Joyce Brown in mind. Y'all leave her alone until I can talk to her. And Mm -hmm. what happened was, it was so much tension on the Mountain View unit, they called me to what was called the count office, the administration building, and mm-hmm. they called her. And 
for the first time in my life when I saw Renee Taylor. And she looked at me. She said, I told him that I didn't know you. I told them that you weren't with me. Mm-hmm. That's how she got a life sentence. She was in the process of going to trial. And when she told her attorney that she didn't know me, had never seen me before in my life, he told her if they gave that young lady a life sentence, they're going to fry you. And there's nothing that I can do. And mm-hmm. so she plea bargained for a life sentence, and they sent her to the unit where I was. And she said, I'll talk to your attorney. And that's how the ball got rolling. Mm-hmm. And with her, him coming down, talking to Renee and uh, sending out appeals only for Texas to deny them. Mm-hmm. And then Centurion Ministries came. And nobody can tell me it's not a God in heaven. That's the, right. The investigator yes. was walking through the door mm-hmm. at the at the at the courthouse, and there was a lady that dropped some files. And he, being a gentleman, reached down, picked them up for her, and was passed. She said, "No, those are concerning that young lady that you all are working, whose case y'all are working on, that's sitting in prison for nothing." And she went on about her business. And true enough, Jim McCluskey found a document that showed that the district attorney knew before I went to court mm. that I possibly was not that person. And mm. they locked it up for almost a decade before, wow. we were able to, before they were able uh, to get to it. And wow. that document is what... Uh, made the courts of appeals uh, reverse uh, reverse my case. Oh, there you have it. Our friend and victim of, a, of our system, Joyce Ann Brown. Um, it's a tragedy. A tragedy. I cannot sit here but to think as she's talking. The emotion, the passion, the stress of what she shared that she had gone through. She said, I was in a state of shock. I cannot help but think of my sister tonight as the pressure and all that uh, was going on there. Uh, had to affect Joyce Ann Brown. Nine years. The pressure on my sister, she did six months. And I don't make light of that in any way. But when you hear the voice of Joyce Ann Brown, it is clear. This was a life-altering situation. My understanding was She passed away of a heart attack, had suffered strokes prior to her death. But one of Banks Clark suffered a stroke that took her life. Collateral damage of injustice 
We're coming back here. We'll take a quick break. We're going to be joined by Kaquise Spencer, the daughter of Joyce Ann Brown. Joining us also shortly, Kimberly Jenkins Snodgrass will be joining us. She's the vice chair of Interfaith Action for Human Rights. We're going to hear from them. She's a true family friend of the Browns. And Joyce Ann Brown's daughter will be joining us in that conversation. This is AJC Radio as we continue the series, Collateral Damage of Injustice, focusing on the life and the memory and the tragedy of the death of Joyce Ann Brown. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip-up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize They didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to perform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you?
And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Continue our series, Collateral Damage of Injustice. And tonight we highlight the life and the work of Joyce Ann Brown, who appeared on this program. We were delighted to have her. We've played part one of that interview tonight. But right now we're going to be joined by some folks that are definitely close to the situation of Joyce Ann Brown and what she went through. And we are very honored and privileged to have the two ladies I'm getting ready to introduce to you right now. Uh, Kakui Spencer, she is the daughter of Joyce Ann Brown, um, was 11 years old when her mother was taken away to spend nine years, five months and 24 days in a prison for a crime she never committed. We're going to hear from her. And Kakui, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you so very much for taking time tonight. And uh, our thoughts and prayers continue to be with you, your family, uh, for what you folks have endured. We appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing your story and how it affected you. We couldn't be more grateful tonight than what we are uh, to have you on this program. We appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Also, Vice Chair Interfaith Action for Human Rights, uh, close family friend, Kimberly Jenkins Snodgrass. She's joining us. And Kimberly, are you with us? I'm here, and thank you for having me. And you're very, very welcome. We appreciate both of you ladies tonight. And I don't know how much of the show you've heard. We've played that interview uh, with, uh, with Joyce Ann Brown, and her passion and what she endured is, is absolutely uh, unacceptable from a system that calls it je- itself justice. Uh, they rendered no justice to Joyce Ann Brown, her becoming then an advocate uh, for the wrongfully convicted. Our respect, uh, I cannot even begin to express that in enough words to tell you how much we respect her. We respect you two ladies for coming on and sharing this story. So uh, we're very grateful for that. And my first question will go to Kakwis. Um In regards to what, 11 years old, tell us a little bit. I'm going to give you the floor. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you felt in that moment. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the time you got back with your mom prior to her death. Uh, and what you're what you're up to now? Just share your story, if you would. Um, okay. Um, yes, I was 11 years old um, when my mom was first uh, arrested for the crime. Um, actually, I was coming home from school to um, walking home from school and got to the house to see them. The police there ramshacking the house, going through um, just you know turning things over, taking clothes out of the closet. I mean, they literally um, just had the house looking like it had just, like a tornado had hit it or something. And um, just remember someone, um, my grandmother sending someone to pick me up and to bring me to her house. And then the next day taking me to visit my mom at jail and her telling me that, don't worry about anything. They've made a mistake. I didn't do this, and I'll be home. Um, that turned into nine years, five months, and 24 days before she got to come back home. Um, it was, you know, I mean, growing up in that type of situation, um, as a child, you're kind of just like, being an only child, because I am the only child of my mom, um, just a lot of loneliness. Um, you know, no one could ever understand 
the um, how I felt because they were always like, you know, everybody's showing you love, everybody's trying to love you. Appreciate all of that, but it still wasn't the same because, you know, as I went to school every day, as I saw my friends with their moms every day, you know, everybody was able to be with their mom, but I had to wait until every Saturday to go visit my mom, to drive four hours, to visit for two hours, and to come back home for driving four hours would seem like driving 40 hours. Um, once they released her, um, and she came home, you know, I'm, our relationship stayed strong the same from the time that she went up until they released her because I, I always knew that my mom didn't commit the crime and I was in for the long haul to do that time with her and to continue to fight to prove that she did not commit the crime. So um, when she came home, of course, it was a joyous occasion, but um, she just taught me the ropes. We started out uh, ten toes down, just continuing to push for uh, prison reform back at that time, Um, and her starting nonprofit organization of Mass, Inc., Mothers, Fathers for the Advancement of Social Systems, you know, assisting these people with jobs, housing, counseling, anything that they needed to maintain their freedom. Um, I went on many uh, days of going down to the Capitol here in Austin, Texas, and lobbying for the rights um, for these people to get their voting rights back, the ones that had lived down their parole or probation that was still just because they had been in jail and had been convicted of a crime. At first, Texas, they didn't have the right to vote. Well, thanks to Joyce Ann Brown for her continuous effort that Texas now, once you have completed your parole and completed your probation, you can get out and you can go and vote. You can re-register and and, and vote, which is what we need. Um, She also fought for them to do the um to repay the prisoners you know for the time that they were unjustly incarcerated and lo and behold i guess um she was stepping on someone's toes because when they did finally pass the bill to go back and financially assist these people that they had wrongfully convicted um unfortunately they had to tell her that uh, I'm sorry, you don't, you know, you don't fall in this category. Um, you, your statute of limitations ran out or, you, you know, it, it goes all the way back to like a year before she was released. So that was a slap in the face for her right. and something that she never, you know, just really got over the fact that she was one of the first to get out and how diligently she worked with senators and lawyers and judges and with Dallas County sitting on the grand jury and worked with all of these people in making sure to, you know, get something done about these wrongfully incarcerated people and just um, formerly incarcerated people in, in, in general, you know, helping them get their citizenship back and remaining, you know, productive citizens in society. Um, they told her that, you know, we don't owe you anything. You know, you did the nine years. They didn't wow. even owe her apology. They didn't even give her an apology. It was just that you, the case was 
dismissed. They decided not to retry her, and that was it. That's unbelievable. That is, but that's the system in which we have that you have your mom and I, who's out here working because of what she endured, and you come back and tell me, oh, we don't owe you anything. You took nine years, almost nine and a half years of my life from my child, from my family. You owe me nothing because there is no accountability for the conduct. How does a judge even allow the case in a preliminary hearing? The preliminary hearing is the, is the proceedings that allows you to say to the judge, we have sufficient evidence to go forward or we don't the judge makes the decision at that time let's proceed to trial we have sufficient evidence it is clear in the case of Joyce Ann Brown there was no evidence to support what they did to her and your their response is to say we owe you nothing this is why the system is broken stuff just like this. I want to ask you a question and I'm going to uh, 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 I'm going to come back to you on a question about your mother's health. I want to hear a little bit from Kimberly. Kimberly, tell us how you were affected by this tragedy. Well, when it, when it, when it comes to uh, Joyce and Brown, we had been friends for uh, over 16 years and I was her manager. And when I first met Joyce Ann, I just couldn't believe her story. Her story was unbelievable. Uh, it was sad. I met her in Chicago. So the bottom line is the state of Texas killed Joyce Ann Brown. When Coquise talk about um, the bill that would have allowed her to get restitution for the time that she had spent in prison and because she had embarrassed the state of Texas with the 60 Minutes interview, they made sure that she would not uh, get restitution. Joyce Ann Brown's mother had cancer in her mouth and stood on that floor in the legislative house in Austin asking them to pay her daughter but she could come back and do things for her family who had suffered. And they killed the bill. And my dear friend became sick. They broke broke her heart because she had faith in the system that they would turn around and do the right thing by her. Did, let me ask a question. And we, we talk about this. I said at the onset of this show, the collateral damage of injustice series on this program started with the death of my sister, Luana Banks-Clark, who was wrongfully convicted, a church counselor, a Christian woman, Never an issue with the law, and I'm making a point here. She suffered a massive brain clot that took her life. The injustice that happened to her brother, who she saw every other week at the federal prison camp here in Colorado, who's also wrongfully convicted. The doctors asked us one question, and I'm, I'm coming to the health question, Kakuish, to you. Uh, and Kimberly, you can chime in on this as well. The doctor's first statement to our family was this. Was Luana under any pressure or stress? When she went to the grand jury, which she never should have been called to, after spending hours of answering over 200-plus questions, 
she left that courthouse and she complained of a headache that was so severe. She said she has never felt pain in her head like that. And the, and the doctors described it as someone having pressure that puts up, you know, that presses up against the back of the head in the brain area that causes that clot to erupt. When I hear you talk about Joyce, and you said she, her heart was broken, and I think I, I will use your words, uh, Kimberly, the state of Texas killed her. That's the bottom line. Bottom Stroke line. On the bottom line, and nobody wants to have that conversation. Everyone wants to talk about, well, she died of a heart attack. What contributed to the pressure in Joyce Ann Brown's head when she was suffering strokes what caused her heart to stop a broken heart and a system that put her through nine and a half years Kaquise, when she came when you came to that jail that day she said it's going to be okay you know why she believed in a system that we've all been taught is fair that if you didn't do it you don't have to worry about prison that is a complete falsehood that's false. Kakuish, tell me a little bit if you can. You talk about, and Kimberly, you chime in with me as well, that after that happened to her, the brokenness, the heart, did she complain of headaches? Did she, did she seem really, I mean, a broken heart is a broken heart. Those symptoms that come with that is sadness that, and then made her even get out here and work harder to try to change, yeah. to, to institute change. That's Kikwish, what, that's, go ahead. That's what I was going to say. Um, that made her, the, first of all, when she got out, she didn't get out to even fight the system. She got out to work with the system. As mm-hmm. I testified in front of the legislative, there were senators lined up that got up and stood up and testified of the work that she had done and what she had contributed and how they also felt that if anybody should be get any type of restitution, it should be Joyce Ann Brown because of the numbers that we, you know, the, the formerly incarcerated, the percentage of the community that we helped. Um, when you said Joyce Ann Brown, that when you got out of prison, that was the first name that came off of the tongues of any formerly incarcerated person was, as soon as I get home, I have to go to Miss Brown. I have to go to Miss Brown. Miss Brown can make, can change your life. Um, her birthday just passed on February the 12th. And I happened to be strolling through Facebook, and a young man had a picture of her up, and he is a friend of mine, but he had a picture of her up, and the and his caption was, happy birthday, rest in heaven, and thank you for saving me. Wow. Because she reached out, and so many people, she never said no. And once they denied to give her her restitution, she began to continue to fight for anything that she could that dealt with any type of um, wrongful incarceration or just any type of mass incarceration, you know, the, the, the just the way they the things that we're going through today. She fought all of those things. Um, she never stopped fighting. But after the first time that they denied that bill, I did see a change in my mom. I saw her just kind of like sit back with a big sigh, like, you know, she was just so disappointed and hurt that not only did she get out here and work with them, she worked for them. Um, she did state grants. She did 
local grants. She did um, the Ryan Wright grants for the HIV and AIDS. She did all of those things working with these people on little money. Now, we were up against Project Rio for a grant where it was $1.2 million. We beat out every state organization that they had, and they still only gave her $75,000 and gave the remaining money to the Texas workforce in which they turned around and referred their clients to Ms. Brown for her to get them work. And to take it a step further, October 29, 2009, in the U.S. House of Representatives, it was the Honorable Danny K. Davis of Illinois, congratulated Ms. Brown, Joyce, and celebrating her 20 years of freedom on the House floor. On the U.S. House floor. She had those credentials when she hit the legislation in Austin. And they still did not give her restitution. I would, Joyce and I, I'm in D.C. area. I'm in the D.C. area. And Joyce and I would talk on the phone two, three times a day. After they turned her down for restitution, she would call me. She would say, Kim, I'm tired. Kim, I don't feel well. She never was the same. And the toll that it took on her. Yes. It, it was it was fast paced. It was like maybe within six to eight months she was gone. Took her right up out of here. Wow. You know what? Uh, we have a part two of that interview, ladies. What you're saying is exactly why we're on this program tonight. That Joyce Ann Brown was collateral damage of injustice. And when you say she was never the same, she complained about being tired and the disappointment. Luana Bex Clark, the story sounds eerily the same. I lost my sister. You lost your friend. Kakwish, you lost your mother. This is unacceptable in this country. And because no one is held accountable... The cycle continues. And I appreciate, Kimberly, your voice, Laquish, your voice. You have to speak out. And I'll tell you what, Joyce Ann Brown impacted this radio show with one interview that we never forgot. What I'm going to do, I'm going to, you guys have been so gracious with us tonight. We're going to come back. I'm going to get your closing thoughts of how, what can we do to keep the memory of Joyce Ann Brown alive? I'm going to play for you when we come back our closing tribute when we heard about the sudden death of Joyce Ann Brown. And uh, we're going to be in touch on the other side, uh, offline, of how we can work together. We're going to be, uh, we're in D.C. quite frequently. Uh, Kimberly, love to meet you, love to sit down and talk with you, and how we can come together to be a voice in this hour against injustice. So can you ladies come back with us as we close out this segment? Okay, we appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen of America, Joyce Ann Brown, tragedy and a sad moment. Even as we relive this tonight, that her life had to be lost 
as she was treated so poorly by this system that we call justice. We're coming back with the closing thoughts with our very esteemed guest, Coquise Spencer and Kimberly Jenkins Snodgrass with their closing thoughts as we remember Joyce and Brown. This is AJC Radio. Collateral damage of injustice marches on. We'll be right back. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, continuing our series on collateral damage of injustice. And this has been a heart-wrenching moment tonight as we have looked back at the injustice suffered by Joyce Ann Brown. We've been graciously joined tonight uh, by daughter of Joyce Ann Brown, Kakwee Spencer, 
a fam- long family friend of Joyce Ann Brown, Kimberly Jenkins, Snodgrass. Uh, we are honored and privileged to have uh, them on this show. And ladies, thank you for coming back um, to give some closing thoughts. And I got a question before we get there. Right now, what I'm going to do is play our tribute to the memory of Joyce Ann Brown. We're going to get your thoughts and let you folks go for the evening, but get your closing thoughts as we remember this legend of advocacy and justice, Joyce Ann Brown. I was never going to say I was sorry. I was never going to show remorse. I didn't have a reason. And I certainly was not going to admit to a crime that I didn't commit. So after maybe five years, I started preparing my family Mm -hmm. that I might just simply have to come out in a pine box. I didn't want them coming down telling, asking me, uh, talking about it because there was no way that I was going to admit to a crime that I didn't commit. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. As you hear the last words uh, on this program of Joyce Ann Brown, we come to you tonight very saddened that Miss Brown has passed away at the tender age of 68. Joyce actually appeared on this program and told us her story and the remarkable battle of courage that it took for her to come back from a wrongful conviction. Joyce Ann Brown, a longtime advocate for people who were wrongfully in prison, she died early Saturday morning. Her daughter, Coquise Spencer, said her mother had suffered a massive heart attack and stroke on Tuesday. Brown was being treated at Methodist Charlton Medical Center in Dallas. Again, she was 68 years old. Brown spent more than nine years in prison on an aggravated robbery conviction that was later overturned and eventually erased from her record. She founded the prisoner advocacy group MASS, Mothers, Fathers for the Advancement of Social Systems. She was an assistant for a friend of Dallas County Commissioner John Wiley Price. She also wrote a book called Justice Denied and was profiled by the television show 60 Minutes. To our friend, Joyce Ann Brown, we bid you farewell. And I can assure you, the legacy of Joyce Brown will continue. Goodbye, our dear friend, from all the staff and the AJC radio team, we sadly say goodbye. Rest in peace, Joyce Ann Brown. Well, there you have it. Um, very emotional for us. Uh, Kaquise and Kimberly joining us tonight. The daughter of Joyce Ann Brown, Kaquise Spencer, Kimberly Jenkins Snodgrass, as we did our best to honor honor her. Uh, and again, just shocked. Um, we had even laughingly talked about uh, Joyce coming out here to Colorado Springs and meeting with us and sitting down perhaps for a dinner or lunch of some kind, and too soon, gone far too soon. And uh, I believe, as Kimberly put it very bluntly, 
state of Texas, a criminal justice system in this country took the life of Joyce Ann Brown. And uh, Kimberly and Kukwisa, I'm coming right to you. Kimberly, I didn't want to end this segment without you talking about the injustice that your son uh, has uh, suffered. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? We're going to definitely bring you back on if you're welcome, open to that to discuss the injustice he is going through uh, right now. Sure. My son is wrongfully incarcerated and when they, uh, here in the state of Virginia. And when they say that the Lord will not put on you no more than you can handle, um, uh, it's a true statement. The only thing I can say is that had I not met, met Joyce Ann Brown, before this entered my home and learned about wrongful incarceration, I probably would have lost my mind. Um, as you said, that's another show, but I will say that Kevin is doing well. We're fighting, and in fighting his wrongful incarceration, I have learned about another U.S. worst-kept secret, and that's solitary confinement. So mm-hmm. I would love to come back and talk to you about that. And we're going to definitely have you on. We're going to talk about his story uh, we did a show actually on solitary confinement and the inhumane conditions of that. So we welcome you. I will definitely be in touch with you about bringing you back on to that show without question. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, Kakwis, what would you like our listeners to know about your mother? Uh, and what do we need to do to better ourselves as a nation, as a people, as human beings, as a, as a uh, not only race, but man, human beings, humankind, if you will, to treat people? and to address the tragedies of our system that not only puts people behind bars, puts them in body bags, ultimately, and they're gone. Yeah. What do we do to deal with that in your thoughts as you close out this segment tonight? Um, well, as far as my mom, um, she was one of a kind. Um, for me, I was so bitter and angry um, when she first came home, and I was even bitter and angry with her because I didn't understand her wanting to sit next to these same people and work with these same people that had gave her the injustice that she suffered. Um, But once I began to see um, how she made sure that she was in control and she made sure that what she was fighting for, they listened, and things got done, um, I began to see, you know, what what to do and, and, and how to assist with this, um, what we the, the issue that we have. And um, as I can say as a people, what we need to do is, um, as a race, just start, start out um, – Sometimes give that second chance to that person. Um, some of our young men are going to prison so young that they never had the opportunity to even um, be told, you know, the right and the wrong. Um, so I just, you know, I just hope and pray that everybody, um, you know, takes this in to heed because it happens. It can happen to anybody in any family. Um, those that those that don't have to deal with this, they don't worry about it. It's just something that they, you know, that they throw over their shoulders. 
um, but there are people every day that, you know, need our help and need our assistance, Wrong, wrongfully convicted and not. Those that have served their time and did what they were supposed to do for their crime, when they get out, let's show them a better way of life. Let's show them how they can maintain their life out here as a productive citizen in society and continue to help um, our communities. No, absolutely, Kakuise. Uh, well spoken there. Uh, please, uh, both uh, Kakuise, Kimberly, uh, know that you have an ally and a friend in AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization. Um, whatever we can do to work together uh, to help uh, Kevin, to help the legacy and the memory of Joyce Ann Brown and continue the work that she did, anything we can do to assist in that, please don't hesitate to call upon us. Uh, we will make ourselves available to you, and, and we consider you folks friends of this of this organization. And, again, our thoughts and prayers uh, are with you, uh, and we will continue to be a voice against injustice. And uh, you Thank folks, you very much. you're very, very welcome. You. You're welcome. And, Kimberly, will definitely be in touch. We will do a show highlighting the story of your son and that injustice of solitary confinement and anything else that we need our listeners to know. We appreciate you folks so much tonight. All right, Thank God you. bless. All right, take care. Bye-bye. There you have it, folks. Uh, Kaquise Spencer, daughter of Joyce Ann Brown. Kimberly Jenkins, Snodgrass, a friend of many years with Joyce Ann Brown. And this is, Kendrick, when you sit and hear that, uh, I mean, I'm, I come to tears tonight as we hear that woman, you, when she gave it the, the adjective, when she said a broken heart, when she's pleading her case and telling what happened, you can hear the brokenness of a heart. Kendrick, your thoughts as, as you listen to that tonight? When I hear her story, it basically brings back flashbacks to my own situation and the rest of the RP5. I, can, I, I empathize with her when she knows she's innocent. You have the evidence. All the evidence points to your innocence, similar to our case. You have a firm belief in the system that, you know what, they're going to agree. It's the truth. That's all I'm coming with, the truth. And to sit there and watch your innocence be picked apart piece by piece. You try to present the correct evidence, prosecution, judgment, let it, the ones that I get seen. So how can you get a fair trial? And I, I, I can understand what Joyce Ann Brown went through. You are sure there is no way yeah. that an innocent person with the truth on your side could lose a case. She's a true patriot in my mind because she didn't give up after this. She fought for the citizens of this country against the most powerful nation. That's what you got to understand. The United States government doesn't answer to anyone. It's up to us to say yes. you promised us as citizens of this country justice and demand that justice. And I commend her for unto her death fighting for give me the justice you promised me and the rest of the citizens of this country. Absolutely. Kendrick, uh, Samson, your thoughts on this one. Yeah. One of the parts of, um, Joyce Ann Brown's, um, interview that really struck me is she, when she talked about being in like a twilight zone, yeah. how this, this altered state of reality that she thought she was in, because like Kendrick talked about, you know, we're taught, you know, from kids, at least, you know, that if you obey the law 
and you tell the truth, justice should come out on your side. And by all rights, it should. But uh, as we've stated on this show many times, there's so many corrupt po- uh, politicians and judges, prosecutors that are just trying to get a win and pad their record versus actually standing up for what's right and you know doing the right thing, whether it be somebody, somebody's guilt or innocence. Do the right thing. Give them justice. And I, again, I, I commend Ms. Brown and, and everyone that's out there trying to fight for the rights of people that have been wrongly accused and, and demanding the justice that, you know, all these people so richly deserve. Absolutely. Dennis, your thoughts? I guess the key, the, the, the key statement that stood out to me was when uh, she told her daughter, don't worry, uh, they made a mistake. So that shows you that she truly had confidence in the sure. justice system and that, that everything was going to be all right. But again, uh, she fought, and she came, She fought hard, and she made sure that it was overturned, and then she went out and fought for others. So it's something, you know, I tell you, I'm, I commend her. It was, it's just awesome what she did and uh, what now her daughter is doing. So great, great uh, comments. No, absolutely right, and we're, we're grateful to them. And I cannot help but think about my sister, Luana. They sound the same. The disappointment. And she said, when she said, my mother was never the same. Talked about how tired and disappointed. And suffered several strokes, multiple strokes. Before it was just too much. She could not survive it any further. And we bid again, Joyce Ann Brown, we bid her farewell. And uh, on the other side of the break, we're coming back with another tragedy. The killing, the murder, the cover-up of inmate Michael Anderson from Florence Prison Camp here in Colorado. We're going to hear from that family. You're talking about collateral damage of injustice. It continues. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. That's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows 
The kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. Tonight is we find ourselves in a very troubling situation as a nation. As we look back on the life of Joyce Ann Brown and the sudden death, gone far too soon. The death of Lawana Banks Clark, gone far too soon. We have a problem in this nation. And we fail to focus on the true ramifications, the true tremors, if you will, of injustice in the lives that are torn apart. And in this case, and many others, where lives are lost. Tonight, we deal with a very troubling issue. When does the collateral damage stop? When voices crowd against it. Right now, we turn the page to the death of Michael Anderson. Michael Anderson, 44, died unexpectedly September 7, 2015 in Florence, Colorado. He was born March 25, 1971 in Moscow, Idaho, resided in Cheyenne, Wyoming since 1991. He was a carpenter, built many houses in the Cheyenne area. He loved the outdoors and spent many years, excuse me, hours hunting and fishing. He enjoyed hiking and exploring, hunting wild mushrooms and arrowheads. Suddenly taken by the hand of killers. Those responsible are at Florence Prison Camp here in Colorado in our own backyard. Right now, we're going to play the interview with that family that suffered the loss of this young man. Where a coroner said to the mother... Find an attorney. The prison officials refused to tell her where the body was of her son. Refused to cooperate and do what protocol says must be done. P website. Nothing was followed. They even offered to cremate the body of Michael Anderson. For one reason. To not expose the cover up of his death. Right now, we bring you that interview, Billy Anderson and that family, whose, young, whose son was ripped from them in a moment. Let's hear it. 
ladies and gentlemen of America, we are joined by the family members of Michael Anderson. And uh, I would ask the question, and I put this question first to Billy, his mother, uh, who said, Billy, you have reason to believe that this was not a suicide, as the prison has stated. Why don't you talk to our listeners and tell your story of what you believe happened? Okay. I know that uh, I was visiting Michael on Sunday, and he was scared to death. And he kept saying, you know, that the guards were harassing him and that the inmates were being mean to him and that they put him in the solitary confinement um, and that I know Andy was scared. Um, I don't believe he committed suicide because Andy was stronger than that. And also uh, he promised his son and I, he would be all right. Um, I, I uh, just, the feeling inside my heart and my stomach, and a mother knows, you know, yeah. um, I, I do not believe he killed himself. I believe that he was killed by either guards or inmates. Okay. And, uh, during our conversation, Billy, you had stated that, um, and I believe, Terry, you shared this with me, that he said he was counting the days. Uh, uh, he had two years uh, left to go, and he was counting the days of getting out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, he was, you know, he was uh, uh, looking forward to doing different things and, and going different places and uh, just getting out of there. <laughs> Yeah, he was he he was really looking forward to it. Okay, and um, Terry, uh, did somebody else have a comment on this? No, I can just uh, second that. Uh, I I was down there two weeks before he killed or he was killed, and uh, he was counting down the months to get out, talking about you know job hunting and. Yeah, it just really took me by surprise. Yeah, so every indication points to the fact that he was looking to come home. Uh, I, yeah. I, I think, uh, and these are these are why the questions are raised. And uh, as you know, uh, Florence, Colorado, has had a history of questionable conduct uh, at that facility. If you guys went into any other issues while you were there? That raised a question that made you feel that you know what something is something's wrong here. Um, and and one question before you, before you go there, what was he put in solitary confinement for? Well, they said that he was chewing tobacco, and I know he was not because I had been with him from eight o'clock in the morning until three in the afternoon. You know, and and there's no breaks. I mean he potty break or something like that, but you don't have tobacco in the potty room. Anyway, uh, I know he did not have tobacco in his mouth. I would have seen it and I would have smelled it. And his 19-year-old son also said, you know, he didn't smell it and and Trevor's got a good nose. You know, we know he didn't have tobacco in there. They said he swallowed it. I think it was just a reason to put him in solitary confinement, you know, so they had him off by himself. Right. And, uh, and honestly, um, 
uh, <coughs> if any tobacco was in the facility, number one, they would have cut his break or his visit short immediately if there was any threat of contraband uh, based upon policy. Uh, so the fact that he waited out his entire visit and was talking to you. Um, now, Billy, you did reference something in reference that uh, the guards even threatened him. Uh, was threatening the fact that they were going to put inmates on him to shank him. Is that correct? Um, uh, that's what uh, I was told by by another inmate. You know. Oh, I see. And rest, and rest assured, folks, uh, you know, inmates, uh, they're the newspaper of the prisons. Uh, and they're the current news of the prisons. And I'm telling you, a lot of the stuff is valid that inmates are talking about. Go ahead. I can verify that, Lamont. I've I've been to um, unfortunately a number of of federal institutions, uh, including the camp at uh, at Florence. And okay. I'll tell you, there's a there's a number of guards there that think that it is their duty in life to become your punisher. Not that being there is punishment enough. Being away from your family and your loved ones and and the people you care about and doing the things in life that we actually enjoy, they sure. think it is their duty to be your punisher. And firsthand, I, I swear to God that this is the truth. No, oh, I agree with you. I was wrongfully convicted here in the state of Colorado, uh, wrongfully, and uh, did time um, for seven years for something I didn't do. So the knowledge of how things operate in the, in the penal system is very much the same at the state and federal level. Um, you know, and Desiree, is that his daughter? Yes. And Desiree, are you on the line with us as well? Yes, I am. Okay. And again, my condolences to you. When you look at, at the situations here where your father is concerned, um, you know, I don't see a father just in this case, you know, I, I kept saying to Billy, it doesn't stand to reason that a man – now, if a man is facing a life sentence, he's never going to get out. He's miserable. He's unhappy. He has nothing to go to. He is alone. He is destitute. That's one thing. But for your father, Desiree, to be looking at two years, he's counting the days. He's talking about job hunting. He's talking about seeing his little girl again. What are your thoughts about what happened here, Desiree? Well, I don't think he did it himself. Just, I mean, he was talking to his grandkids. He would call and talk to them and tell them, you know, how when he gets out, they're going to go do stuff and go hunting. And it just doesn't add up to me. Absolutely. And have you guys um, um, filed any type of report? Uh, I understand, uh, and we will. Uh, not talk about things specific to the to the pending uh, litigation or whatever may be pending, but has action been taken uh, in regards to the um, to action in regards to uh, you know calling the prison in question of what's going on? This is Terry. Let let me speak to that a little bit. Um, I, you know, I've got a couple, I guess, opinions or observations here. Uh, first thing I'm pretty sure of is directly or indirectly, this prison caused Andy's death. Okay. Uh, trying to get information from uh, this 
federal bureaucracy for the average individual is pretty much impossible. <clears throat> I tried, you know, this is, he died on the 7th, it's a holiday. I started the next day trying to call all the numbers that I could get my hands on to the prison. <clears throat> I, I wasn't looking for details of what happened or how it happened, just the logistics. Uh, how do we get him back? Where is he now? So on. Zero help. I mean, zero. Uh, finally had one gal says, well, call the mortuaries. Didn't say who or where. Just start calling the local mortuaries. And that's where I found him. I started calling there and he, he was at it. And they said, yeah, we got him. Um, so, it, you know, <clears throat> trying to get any answers out of this prison for the average individual about anything, even finding a person to talk to, is impossible. You know, that's, that's my experience. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that, you know, be, before he died, he was afraid of something. He didn't confide a lot in me. Yeah, I think he did more to his mother and his wife there. Sure. Uh, but the, the thing of it is, uh, these guys in prison, any prison, they, they are uh, totally, you know, at the mercy of the people running it. I mean, there's no way you can dial 911 or call anybody when you want to. Or, and uh, I know the days before his death, you know, something was bothering him. He was worried. And I know he'd reached out to at least a couple of the guards for help. And uh, not only did he get not help, you know, no help, uh, he got pounded in the ground a little more. Yeah. Made it worse. Uh, so he, but, and this is Terry, right? Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, Terry, please go ahead. But yeah, I guess what we're looking for as a family is, is some accountability from this organization. And uh, I'm thinking without some nudge or help, they're not going to give it voluntarily. So, you know, when the person's coming on here, if there's anyone out here that's, uh, that's dealt with this thing before and had any luck with it, know someone that can take it on. Uh, we, we sure like some help here. Oh, and thank you for that, Terry. We intend to um, blow up, if you will, no, uh, not intention, not uh, literally, but to blow up the Internet, uh, Facebook, social media, every place. And to our listeners, ladies and gentlemen across America, this could be you. You could be the Anderson family that has lost a great deal as a result of injustice here. And, you know, it's not unreasonable to believe, uh, Cliff, that, that this situation rings and smells a foul play here. My understanding, uh, Billy, was that there were even some bruises uh, on Mr. Anderson. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about that, then, Cliff. I'm going to have you chime in on this. Okay. Um, well, I went down to see him, you know, before uh, he was uh, cremated and that, and, uh, you know, they embalmed him and everything. And I, he had bruises all over his face. I've got pictures of it. Uh, he did not have those on Sunday when I had left at at uh, noon or whenever I'd left. He had no bruises on his face, but he does have quite a few bruises on his face. 
Oh, and, wow. uh, uh, and I'm not sure where else he has them because I didn't. Uh, I seen them on, on his face, and, and but I didn't see any others. But that doesn't mean they're not there. And there was blood on the gown that he had on uh, in in the mortuary when I went to see him. There was blood on the gown. Yeah, and, and his lips were split pretty good too. Oh, he did. His he had okay. So it looked like so, like he was in a fight of some sort. Yeah. Okay, and some and Samantha, uh, are you with us? Yes, I am. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. Samantha, uh, you are the wife of Michael Anderson. Yes, I am. My sincere condolences to you uh, as a wife. Uh, I'm so sorry, very very sorry. Um, your thoughts on this? Uh, my understanding from Billy is that he was excited that you were coming uh, to see him, uh, and he looked forward to that. Yes. Um, yeah, I was um, actually. I was in um, the line waiting to visit him um, the day that he supposedly um, killed himself. And I waited from 8 o'clock in the morning until like 11, it was like 11.48 when they came and told me to go to the camp. And I thought I I was happy because I thought they had let him out, you know, of lockdown and he was back in the camp. And um, they just took me in the back and told me that he had taken his own life that morning. Um, I know he was having problems, but mom with the guards, something was bothering him. He wouldn't quite tell me what, mm-hmm. but I don't think he did it. And, and if, if um, he did, yeah. there was somebody making him do it, you know, and I, there was somebody there telling him if he didn't do it, then, you know. Yeah. Well, there's so, there's so many, uh, issues with this story because first off, uh, you know, they they say there's no solitary confinement, that an inmate is not kept in a uh, in a cell by himself. And my take is if, and that is a large if, uh, Michael Anderson had taken his own life, there was someone else in the cell, they would have been able to alert the other guards, they would have been able to help him out of it or uh, help him in whatever situation. That is a large if. And you know, when you look at the facts of this matter, uh, it says that um, you guys, as as his family, had moved to Canyon City, which is very close to the Florence facility, so that you could visit him more often, and that he was uh, ecstatic about that fact that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm counting the days that I'll be getting out. My, my family is closer. They'll be able to uh, to visit me. Um, and then to and not get a report. From BOP that, right. you know, uh, get a call that says something has happened to your loved one. We need to speak to you, you know, as as, as, right. as, as a decent, uh, you know, system would do. But then to wait in line for four hours and then to be brought in the back, your, your husband has taken his life. And then where is the written report on what happened to him? Yeah, have they... and, and to be told, to, for his father to be told. Just check some of the local mortuaries. You'll find them somewhere. Where is right. the dignity wow. and the, the humanity, respect. the respect of this is my family member, this is my son, husband, oh. my father that has passed away? Where, Where is the human side of BOP that says we are helping you? See, that? that's why I say, you know, there's no rehabilitation in the American We're government. not people, Shazam Lamont. We're, we're not people. They feed no. us. 
I've seen firsthand they feed us stuff that says do not feed, not for human consumption. Sure. You know, the chicken that they give us is the side that they inoculate the chickens on. And, you know, they, it's meant to go to, uh, like, hog slop, and they, and they send it to institutions throughout the country for a discounted uh, tax rate. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's that's what they do. We're, we're numbers to them. We're cattle. It's, you know, it's it's a sham. There's corporations like Unicor that are capitalizing on our incarceration, and the money that they make on our commissary is astronomical astronomical oh there you have it the death of Michael Anderson there's no other way to put it murder this man was killed no charges brought to the prison no still to this day after having a conversation with Billy Anderson, the mother of Michael Anderson, they still have not provided a written statement of cause of death, which is protocol at the BOP website, that in the death of an inmate, you must provide immediate reports to the death of any inmate, regardless of what may have caused it. The difference here is solitary confinement, where Michael Anderson resided. There is no interaction with other inmates. Oh, who's responsible? They call them correctional officers. That laughed and said, we will have you shanked on the yard. Officers. Folks that are there to keep the place safe. And they laughed and said, we are going to get you. That's the reason Michael Anderson stated he was scared. Told his mother... I am afraid somebody help me fail to act. They killed Michael Anderson. Florence Prison Cap ADX in Colorado is responsible, culpable in the death, not only of Michael Anderson, but the untimely collateral damage death of his son, who felt he could not go on any further and took a loaded gun and shot himself in the head following the death of his father, the murder the killing of his dad. Right now, we bring you part two in closing of the Michael Anderson tragedy. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, folks, and Samantha, um, have they, and to, uh, this is to, the question to all of you, have they given you anything as far as an incident report, a copy of an incident report? Uh, no, and- I haven't. We haven't got anything, no paperwork, nothing. Not even when they sent his personal belongings to me did I get any paperwork even for, like, from his court hearing as to why he was there. He has no paperwork whatsoever. So they have treated this man as if he belonged in Potter's Field, that he had no family, that he had no one. Um, this This is tragic. And, and, and furthermore, not cut you off, Lamont, but uh, one of our one of our listeners in the chat room has brought this issue up is that how does a medical examiner say this is a suicide when you bring in a bruised body? A bruised body, Does, does a suicide victim punch themselves to several times in the face? Is that, that is not committing suicide. That is an assault, an assault that probably led to death. How does a medical examiner, unless you're in the pocket of the Florence Bureau of Prison System, 
How does a medical examiner sign off and say this man committed suicide? Where is the autopsy report? Where is any of the information? Where is the, the, the official documentation that says this is a suicide? Because all of this information does not... I mean, if you you take all this and you put it together, it does not say that a none story, of it, that none of it makes suicide. sense. None of it makes sense. I mean, nothing about the story makes sense. Every- and again, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about the the coroner report initially. My understanding was they, at least according to paper information by the prison officials, that this was a suicide. Uh, right now, we bring you the exclusive interview with Billy Anderson, who that story's changed and it changed very quickly as the coroner saw something that raised a lot of questions and raised some flags that something else was going on. Let's hear it. Billy, thank you so much for joining us tonight and, and for sharing your story. Uh, as I told our listeners before, and, and Natalie is a uh, young lady that joined us the other night. She talks, she's the founder of Prison Lives Matter. Uh, she's going to uh, listen to the conversation as well as we talk uh, tonight and uh, talk about uh, Michael uh, and also your grandson as well. And Billy, how are things going thus far? I know we talked today uh, and my understanding is you still have not been given the cause of death. It's 2018. Uh, this was 2015, correct? Right. Yeah. They, they still claim it was suicide, but uh, the coroner said it did not look like suicide. And if I could get a lawyer to take my case, uh, you know, I'd probably win because uh, he felt it was murder. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, Go ahead, Billy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And and, uh, anyway, uh, I tried to get the prison to talk to me they will not they would not talk to me they finally just started hanging up on me and calling me names and stuff and I just never got any satisfaction from them at all um all I know is Amy is dead and they did pay for him to be cremated they they wanted him uh cremated as soon as possible and unfortunately my ex-husband uh, went ahead and went along with him and, and let him let him cremate him and that and um, I, I know it's because they didn't want us to you know dig any deeper and that let but, me yeah it, let me ask you a question Billy and thanks for confirming that and, and I tell you what it just calls we will be looking uh, into this even further uh, Natalie, have you ever heard of a prison offering cremation services to someone who has a family that would take? Um, I haven't. I haven't, but I have heard many stories of prisons using different methods to try to hide what really was going on. Like, um, uh, for example, the the example I was talking about on Tuesday about the man who passed away nine days into a sentence up in Dallas, they tried to keep the body from the family as long as possible so that they could hide what it was that they were doing. It, it's kind of pretty much a, a cover-up ploy. They just want to brush everything under the rug. They'll probably um, declare his, his passing of natural causes, and then, then that's the way they get away with it. They declared um, the the gentleman in Texas. They 
they had the coroner report say that he passed away of natural causes when in reality he baked to death for nine days. Um, <sighs> so I, no, I personally, I've never heard of, of prisons offering funeral services or cremation, um, but I'm, I can't say I'm surprised about it. That's unbelievable. Go ahead, Billy. You know, we could not, uh, it took us hours and hours and hours to find Andy's, where Andy's body was. They would not tell us anything after they sent him out, you know, and that they, I mean, my ex-husband had the family get really, really mad before they'd tell us where Andy was and so that we could get him brought back down, you know, down to Cheyenne where we live. Um, and then uh, they they would tell us nothing, you know, absolutely nothing about where he was or anything. Well, and, and I surprised I surprised them by uh, going ahead and having him involved and stuff, and went up and visited him before he came on before he was cremated and that. And Andy had bruises all over him and and that, and you could see where they had had a handcuff on him on one of his arms. You know, and where it was real tight, and he was, he had bruises all over. I know they killed him. I know they did. Oh, I have no doubt about that. And according to Billy, uh, you stated you spoke with your son on the phone the day before he died. He said that the guards told him they were going to have somebody in the yard shake him. He said they were going to keep him in solitary for six months or longer. He only had two years. Two years. Yeah, and see, I. I was up there. I went up there to visit him, uh, and one one day he was not in the hall, and the next day he was in the hall, and he was scared to death. You know, the next day they let me see him for about an hour, and he was scared to death. And he says, Mama, please go tell him I need some help. I, I need some help that they're threatening me. And he was scared out of his mind, you know. That is horrific. Go ahead, Billy. And, and uh, Andy was a very nice guy, but they made it so, you know, nobody would have anything to do with him in the prison. None of the other prisoners or anything. They they told him that they told the other prisoners he was a rat and everything else and just stay away from him. And, and they just isolated Andy totally. We called him Andy. His his real name was Michael, but we called him Andy, and they isolated him totally. kept him kept other people from being near him and and stuff. They they made him a total outcast there. So there was something. I don't know what was going on, but there was something going on from the day one he went into that camp up there. And, and he, I mean, like. He was just in in the camp. He was a nonviolent offender, and uh, you know what they did to that that, that guy is just un, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what states here that uh, inmates that have been in prison camps state that other prison camps are nothing like Florence. It is far from being a camp. The Florence facility is listed as America's number one worst prison, according to the article on the Mother Jones site. You may want to go out there and check that out. Search Mother, Zone, Mother Jones. And they talk about, because it, it's not run like a camp. You've got medium yeah. and high facilities, higher security facilities, 
that runs safer than Florence yeah. Brown. And I believe exactly mm-hmm. what you're saying in regards to this man. He was in the hole. And then what they, it sounds like what they did is torment this man, put him back on the yard, because now you threatened that you're telling other inmates to shake him, to kill him. That yeah. doesn't happen. He goes back to the hole and, and ends up dead? Yeah. Ends up dead. Tell us a little bit, Billy, about your grandson and what he went through when this happened. Well, uh, it was about a month later. Travis, uh, he just couldn't—he just couldn't live without his dad. He just had—he said he had nothing to live for. And then uh, one day he was there, and the next day we found him out. And he said that he loved us all, but he wanted to be with his father. And he, he shot himself in the head. And um, he just, you know, him and his dad were very, very close. And uh, uh, Travis was, um, I don't, or Trevor was just, I don't know. He just couldn't live without his father, you know. Yeah. He was a good kid, a real good kid and, and that, but he just, he said he didn't have anything to live for after his dad died. So sorry to hear that. And uh, Natalie, when you hear that, I mean, this is a real tragedy. And and we're talking about so many of them. And Billy, our thoughts and prayers are continually with your family. And I'll tell you what, a just cause will continue to dig into this even further uh, and get some information sent up to the Bureau of Prisons and fi- file complaints, whatever we got to do, that an investigation, and we hopefully we can hit, reach uh, members of Congress to take a look at the untimely death of your son and hold people accountable for what they have done. And we're going to definitely call out the cremation uh, offer uh, by yeah. I've never that. And this is a cover-up. There's no other way to say it. Natalie, when you hear that, how does that affect you? I'm sure it hits you straight in the heart. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Nobody deserves to die, uh, you know, in prison, especially somebody who's there for a nonviolent charge who was scheduled to be released in, in the relatively near future. I mean, it's it's just sad. You have people, there, you know, there's a group of, of inmates that go to prison and they genuinely try to rehabilitate themselves and they genuinely try to get reintegrated with society and the system just holds them back. And for them to die you know, in, in prison for something that is completely unnecessary and unwarranted, I, I can almost guarantee you that the officers that are responsible for this had some sort of vendetta or they just wanted to feel that they wanted to assert their authority or just act macho or whatever because I can do whatever I want to do if I have a badge on my chest. And it's, and it's the, the fact that they are so easily able to get away with it that kind of empowers them to do it again. And so it, I fear that that um, this isn't the only case and this isn't going to be the last case, not specifically from that institution and, and more generally from all over the country. But it's, it's definitely a heartbreaking story to hear and it's trying to imagine what it must have been like is just mind-boggling for me. Yeah, it's something that uh, just shouldn't have happened. And to go to those lengths again... These folks are acting like they're above the law because our system has allowed them to do so. Right. People to do these things. 
And how do you not tell a grieving mother where the body of her son is? Except you got something to hide. You're hiding something. Right. And it should not be happening. And um, Billy, we're going to be diligently looking into this matter further. Uh, You have my number. Uh, I'm going to definitely stay in touch with you. Uh, How's the other family members hanging in there? How are they doing? Well, most of them are doing real good. His father still is doing real good, you know. He's kind of um, withdrawn since Andy died. And, um, well, his brother is doing better in that. And uh, his two stepdaughters, uh, one of them's doing pretty good, and the other one's just gone wild, you know. Um, And his, well, his wife... She's just she's just um, gone totally to hell, you know. She just I guess she thinks she has nothing to live for, and she just she she drinks and everything, you know. I haven't seen her in in several years. Michael Anderson gone far too soon at the hand of injustice, collateral damage of injustice. Florence prison camp officials have continually tried to cover this up. Michael Anderson was killed. Solitary confinement known as the hole at Florence prison camp. Luana Banks-Clark gone far too soon. As a result of a system that applied so much pressure of injustice, contributed to the death of our dear sister. Joyce Ann Brown, an advocate for justice, nine and a half, nine and, close to nine and a half years, suffered the hand of injustice. Collateral damage of injustice continues as we fight against this tragedy. This is AJC Radio. Till next time, good night, America.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.